RPC Radio. Radio. Hello, you're listening to Insurance Covered. Welcome to the podcast that covers anything and everything to do with insurance. My name is Peter Mansfield and I'm a partner at law firm RPC. Now usually on this podcast I have a guest and we discuss an aspect of the wonderful world of insurance. But this August we are doing something different. Instead of our normal fortnightly podcast we are releasing two episodes a week. So eight episodes in total in a series entitled Meditations on Insurance and Society. So, welcome to Meditations on Insurance and Society. In these eight meditations, we examine the role that insurance has played throughout history in shaping society. These meditations will incorporate a bit of philosophy, some psychology, a dash of anthropology, a few film references, a lot of insurance, and who knows what else. Think of it as a podcast blockbuster. This fourth meditation is called Unmoved Mover, and in it I discuss the psychology of insurance and how it messes with our minds. How insurance fools us into buying it and then fools us again once we have bought it. I'll explain how the mere existence of insurance manipulates us and changes our behaviour. And if it moulds us as individuals, I then wonder whether it also moulds us as a society. By looking at some key historical events in the 18th century, I will try to answer the question, to what extent does insurance influence society and guide history? And I reach some surprising conclusions. It's a fascinating story, and it starts here. I hope you enjoy it. Chapter 1. Why do we buy insurance? The first three meditations have taken us on a meandering journey across many lands and many centuries. And they have brought us to this point. For we are now in the 1700s, a century of revolution, intellectual, political and industrial revolution. And it is here, in this century, that we must now settle for a while. Because in the 1700s, insurance is also in a period of revolution. As explained in the previous meditation, the recent invention of the insurance company has changed everything. Thousands of people are now buying fire insurance, sold as a product by companies such as The Sun, The Hand in Hand and The Royal Exchange. Insurance is no longer constrained by the narrow interests of the small band of merchant insurers. Instead, insurance is now available to everyone, at least in theory. And logically, this rapid explosion of insurance must have had some wider impact on society. But what? And how? And why? These are the questions that we will seek to answer in this meditation. So let's go back to the start and ask a deceptively simple question. Why do we buy insurance? 
Because insurance is not a manufacturer of goods, so it creates nothing. And insurance is not a provider of services, so it doesn't offer any advice. So insurance creates nothing. But there's more. Unlike other forms of capital, it is not new money. It does not inject new cash into a business. At best, insurance is a product that restores what has been lost. So if you lose £5, you get £5. Except, I mean, even that is not necessarily true. You get £5, less the excess, less any adjustment, and of course, subject to terms and conditions. So perhaps more accurately, if you lose £5, you may get £4 if you're lucky, and nothing at all if you aren't. So insurance creates nothing and adds nothing. But there's more. Over the course of a lifetime, most of us will spend more on premiums than we ever get in return. If instead of paying our premiums to insurers, we put an equivalent sum in an interest-bearing account, most of us, by the time of our death, would be better off. So, Insurance creates nothing, adds nothing, and usually generates a loss. But there's more. Insurance is the only product that we buy hoping never to use. Well, maybe fire extinguishers. So maybe insurance and fire extinguishers. Although, kind of secretly, all of us want to let off a fire extinguisher at some point, don't we? So, so perhaps it is just insurance. Anyway, to summarise... Insurance creates nothing, adds nothing, usually generates a loss, and we don't want to use it. So why is insurance so popular? Why do we buy it? Well, as we discussed in the first meditation, we are driven by fear and our innate ability to catastrophize, which means that we are very good at imagining horrific events. In his best-selling book, Thinking Fast and Slow, Daniel Kahneman says, Frightening thoughts and images occur to us with particular ease, and thoughts of danger that are fluent and vivid exacerbate fear. Let's think about this in the context of holidays. If I ask you to imagine the worst thing that could happen to you on holiday, it would take you no time at all to come up with the whole selection of possibilities. In fact, I suspect you're doing it now. Y you are, aren't you? And do you feel your heart rate going up a little as you think about all those horrific things that could happen? Well, I suspect you may be. Because as soon as the frightening image is lodged in our minds, we respond emotionally rather than logically. In particular, we are driven by what is known as the possibility effect. We imagine the possibility of an extreme event and we then place a disproportionate weight on that possibility. If we were perfectly rational people, we would make decisions based on the exact probability of an event occurring. So, if a bad event has a 5% probability, we should give that event a weighting of 5 out of 100 but we don't do that. In fact, experiments by Kahneman and his colleague Amos Tversky suggest that we actually give a 
5% probability event, a weighting of 13.2. So that's almost three times the weighting that we should give that event. Now that is quite some margin of error. And Kahneman blames this phenomenon on the psychology of worry. As soon as we start worrying about something, we quickly exaggerate the risk of those worries actually occurring. And this is why we buy insurance, and lots of it, even though for most of us it makes us poorer. We imagine a future that is far more dangerous and hazardous than it actually is, and we look to insurance to protect us. Kahneman even refers specifically to insurance in this context. He says, People are willing to pay much more for insurance than expected value, which is how insurance companies cover their costs and make their profits. Now, this is a fascinating thought. Insurance companies can only make a profit because of our inability to assess risk. If we were perfectly rational, insurance could never make a profit. Insurance works solely because humans are irrational, which allows insurers to charge the equivalent of 13.2% for a 5% risk. The gap between 13.2% and 5%, so between perceived risk and actual risk, is where insurers and brokers make their money. Kahneman then makes the following observation about people who buy insurance. He says that they buy more than protection against an unlikely disaster. They eliminate a worry and purchase peace of mind. And this is the point. We purchase insurance not just for the practical benefits, so compensation when we need it, but for the mental benefits, to soothe the emotional and irrational disquiet in our brains, to purchase peace of mind. To use the terminology from the first three meditations, it is fear that makes us buy insurance, and it is faith in insurance that removes those fears. So, it is the psychology of worry that fools us into paying too much for insurance. But that is not the only way that insurance messes with our minds. As we will discover next, insurance does something else far, far weirder than that. Chapter 2. Antidote and Vaccine One of the greatest opening sentences in all literature was written by Franz Kafka in his book Metamorphosis. As Gregor Samsa awoke one morning from uneasy dreams, he found himself transformed in his bed into a gigantic insect. Now, Metamorphosis was published in 1915, and in the same year, Kafka also wrote an essay that is not quite so famous. It was called Risk Classification and Accident Prevention in Wartime. Because the same Franz Kafka, who has been called literature's lonely scribe of existential despair, was also a high-ranking official of the Workmen's Accident Insurance Institute for the Kingdom of Bohemia in Prague. I mean, he was, apparently, a significant innovator of modern social and legal reform. I know, unexpected. 
And if you're interested, you can even buy Kafka's collected essays on insurance for £20.61 pence on Amazon. Which, I mean, to be honest, even, even I'm not prepared to pay. Anyway, Kafka once said this. Insurance is like the religions of primitive peoples who believe they can ward off evil by all kinds of manipulations. In other words, we believe that insurance is an amulet. It somehow shields us from danger, protecting us from the risk of harm. Kafka was saying that our belief in insurance is similar to the belief that the simple act of carrying an umbrella will make it less likely to rain. That, in some way, insurance will make it less likely the bad things will happen to us. As an aside, I am comforted by the fact that Kafka also draws a comparison between insurance and religion, the same one that I discussed in Meditation 2. So it's nice to know that it's basically not, not just me. Anyway, if Kafka is right, then insurance screws with our minds in a whole new way. Not only are we fooled into buying it as a result of the psychology of worry, but once purchased, it fools us again into believing that it makes the world a safer place. But at this point, you might respond with the perfectly legitimate retort, yeah, but yeah, that's just Kafka, isn't it? Said with a shrug of the shoulders and a roll of the eyes. And, and of course, you'd be right. I mean, I agree that one cannot base a whole theory simply on the musings of Franz Kafka. But thankfully, we don't have to, because we also have the research of Professor Orit Tikhachinsky. In November 2021, Tikhachinsky did a TED Talk, which is available online, and which was based on a paper that she wrote in 2008 called Insurance, Risk and Magical Thinking. In one of her experiments, Tikhachinsky asked two groups of people to estimate the risk of some awful medical event happening to them within the next five years. But, and here is the key point, one group was reminded beforehand of the existence of insurance and the other group was not. The group that had been reminded of insurance thought that it was less likely that they would need an operation in the next five years, it was less likely that they would need physiotherapy and it was less likely that they would need nursing care. Now, that would be weird enough by itself, but it gets weirder. They also thought it was more likely that they would win the lottery and less likely that they would suffer monetary loss. And finally, and rather poignantly, given the situation in Ukraine, they thought it was less likely that there would be a war in Europe. So our belief in insurance results in us also believing that the world is a better place. And this was not just a one-off result. Another experiment showed that if we are unable to obtain last-minute travel insurance for a flight, we believe that we are more likely to lose our luggage. Professor Tikhachinsky describes these results as insurance-related magical thinking. Now, of course, this form of thinking is not rational, whether or not I have insurance will not make it more or less likely that a tree will fall on me. As Tikhachinsky says in a wonderfully memorable phrase, insurance is an antidote, it is not a vaccine. The purpose of insurance is to compensate for loss, it is an antidote. But it cannot prevent that loss from occurring, it is not a vaccine. 
But it seems as though we believe at some level that insurance does in fact act as both vaccine and antidote. Which means that Kafka was right. We see insurance as a means by which to ward off evil. But what is the consequence of this magical thinking? What happens when people mistake indemnity for immunity? Well, one consequence is that people may take risks that they otherwise would not take if they were not insured. And this phenomenon has a name. Moral hazard. Chapter 3. A Factor of Unsafety To modern ears, the phrase moral hazard suggests that it has something to do with ethics or morality. But it doesn't. Well, not in the way you might expect. It simply means that the behaviour of an insured is altered as a result of that insured having insurance. The theory is that if someone has insurance, they are more likely to do the very thing that they are insured against. Now, the best-known examples of moral hazard often involve situations where the insured consciously makes a decision in the knowledge that it has insurance. An extreme example of this conscious moral hazard can be seen in Frank Capra's brilliant Christmas movie, It's a Wonderful Life. The film opens with the main character, George Bailey, on a bridge contemplating the prospect of leaping into a swollen and freezing river. We find out later that he is doing this precisely because his life assurance policy means that he is worth more dead than alive. Another example which will be well-known to British listeners, is the story of John Darwin. On 21st of March 2002, he paddled out to sea in a kayak and faked his own death. His wife then claimed on his life assurance to pay off their debts. And returning for a moment to the 1700s, there was concern then that the existence of this newfangled fire insurance might encourage insureds to commit more arson. And even now, Burning a factory down to get the insurance money remains a staple for films and TV programmes. These are all examples of the ways in which insurance cause people to make deliberate and conscious decisions. But actually, for our story, I'm more interested in the way that moral hazard works unconsciously. How it manipulates our behaviour without us even realising. For example... If you have home and contents insurance, you may take slightly less care to protect your possessions, which then slightly increases the risk that they will be stolen or broken. And if we're all just 1% less cautious, that equates to millions of pounds of additional losses for insurers. Or the fact that I have car insurance might mean, in fact it probably does mean, that I drive my car more often or slightly faster than I would do if I were uninsured, thereby making it slightly more likely that I would have an accident or that if I have an accident, the damage may be slightly worse. Now, none of this is immoral behaviour, which is why I said earlier that moral hazard is not about morality. Moral hazard means nothing more than that the existence of insurance changes our behaviour. In other words, and this is what I find kind of absolutely fascinating. The existence of insurance creates the risk against which it insures. 
And this is entirely logical when you think about it, because an uninsured person will automatically include a factor of safety in everything they do. They will take more care when driving, when locking up their house, when travelling, because they are protecting their own money. But the equivalent insured person is not protecting their own money, and as such is less likely to include that factor of safety and may even introduce a factor of unsafety, if I'm allowed to invent a word for these purposes. They may actively take risks. And that is the consequence of moral hazard. And the risk of moral hazard arises at two different stages of the insurance process. Before something goes wrong and after something goes wrong. To explain this, let's look at health insurance. And this applies both to private health insurance and universal public health care. So first, there is before the event moral hazard. This refers to the possibility that an insured will engage in riskier behaviour in the knowledge that it is insured. So, for example, the knowledge of health insurance may make us less bothered about eating healthily or keeping fit thereby increasing the risk that we will need medical assistance at some stage. And second, there is after the event moral hazard. So a person with health insurance may insist on more expensive medical treatment than an uninsured person, i.e. someone who would have to pay for that treatment themselves. Now, at this point, some of you might be thinking that there is a third opportunity for moral hazard, namely at the point of purchase. Because, sticking with the health insurance example for the moment, ill people want health insurance more than healthy people. As such, a health insurance product is inevitably going to be more attractive to ill people than it is to healthy people. But ill people are, of course, a higher risk to the insurer. So this is indeed a further hazard for insurers but it is a slightly different concept and it is one that is called adverse selection. As we have explained, moral hazard is all about how the existence of insurance changes an insured's behaviour, whereas adverse selection relates to an imbalance of information at the point of purchase. At the point of purchase, the insured will know precisely why they want insurance, whereas the insurer will not. And this will create a potential risk for insurers. So, for example, a person involved in skydiving may be keener to buy life insurance than someone with a more sedate lifestyle. Or someone with expensive camera gear may want more travel insurance than someone without. Now, the insurer will, of course, ask questions in the proposal form to protect themselves and to find out why the insured wants to purchase insurance. But there will always be an asymmetry of information as such insurers are always vulnerable to misunderstandings or to fraud. And, of course, there are plenty of fraudsters who see insurance as a potential means to make money quickly. You buy insurance, you trigger the insurance, you pocket the money. And this was recognised long ago by the novelist Charles Dickens in his short story, Hunted Down, where he wrote that a life assurance office is at all times exposed to be practised upon by the most crafty and cruel of the human race. So that's adverse selection. But in our story, we are more interested in moral hazard. 
and the way in which the mere existence of insurance changes human behaviour. How insurance persuades us, whether consciously or unconsciously, to do things that we would not otherwise do and to take risks that we would not otherwise take. Chapter 4. The Unmoved Mover So we have this strange paradox with insurance. It changes nothing, but it changes everything. It changes nothing because it simply compensates insureds for their loss. It puts things back close to how they were. As we said at the outset of this episode, insurance creates nothing, adds nothing, and usually generates a loss for the insured. But yet, through a combination of the psychology of worry and magical thinking and moral hazard, insurance changes everything because it changes human behaviour. The American art critic David Levi Strauss has written a series of essays on photography and belief. In one of those essays, he discusses the writings of Wilhelm Flusser, who wrote a book called Towards a Philosophy of Photography. Flusser argues that the camera is different from other machines because it does not intend to change the world. Instead, the camera changes the meaning of the world. A photograph is static, yet at the same time it is not, because it overlays new meaning onto that moment. A Vietnamese girl running naked away from a napalm attack. Four American soldiers raising the stars and stripes on Iwo Jima. Four musicians walking across a zebra crossing on a London street. Marilyn Monroe standing over an air vent, her skirt billowing. Che Guevara in his beret. A photograph has a life of its own. It tells its own story. It moves. And in the world of finance, I wonder whether insurance plays a similar or parallel role. Insurance does not intend to change the world, but it somehow changes the meaning of the world. Put another way, insurance is unmoved, but at the same time, it moves. The concept of the unmoved mover was first advanced by the Greek philosopher Aristotle. His view was that for every effect, there must be a cause. Z is caused by Y, is caused by X, is caused by W, and so on, until eventually you get to A, and the endless chain of cause and effect is brought to an end. Or, more accurately, it is brought to a beginning, because A is the original cause. A is not itself caused, it is unmoved, in the sense that nothing causes or moves it, but yet it is the cause of everything, it causes movement, it is therefore both unmoved and a mover, hence the concept of the unmoved mover. Now, of course, I am not suggesting that insurance is the ultimate unmoved mover, the cause of everything, I mean that would be a tad ridiculous But inherent within insurance is something of the essence of the unmoved mover. Insurance changes nothing, yet it changes everything. The vast majority of insurance policies are purchased, but never used. Insurance changes nothing, 
Yet, the mere existence of these unused policies changes human behaviour, and this in turn changes our daily decisions, which changes practical and financial outcomes, and scaled up to a societal level, it changes economies, and it changes history. Insurance changes everything. Chapter 5. Nudge and Nuance Ha! Insurance changes everything, does it? Well, exactly. Let's test that grandiose statement by applying the theory to some actual history. So let's now look at the role of insurance in the context of three pivotal events in the 18th century. The Industrial Revolution in Britain, the American War of Independence, and finally, the development of the North Atlantic trade in enslaved Africans. And let's see whether there is any evidence to support the thesis that insurance influenced the direction and outcome of those historical events, that insurance acted as this mythical, unmoved mover. So first, the Industrial Revolution. And by Industrial Revolution, we mean the developments in Britain between around 1750 and around 1850 that resulted in the transition of the British economy from one based on agriculture to one based on industry. So the steam engine, the cotton mill, the iron furnace, that sort of thing. And we must ask ourselves this question. To what extent was society during the Industrial Revolution shaped by the existence of insurance, and particularly by fire insurance? The leading book on this topic is by Professor Robin Pearson and is called Insuring the Industrial Revolution, Fire Insurance in Great Britain, 1700 to 1850. Robin was also a guest on the Insurance Covered podcast earlier this year when we discussed exactly this question. And the starting point is to recognise that back in the 1700s, fires were common. Nowadays, of course, a a major house fire is a rare event. But the 1700s were a time when candles provided light, hot coals provided warmth, and boiling vats of indefinable substances provided income. Combine that with timber buildings, new machines and dockside wharfs full of combustible goods, plus an endless supply of arsonist urchins, luddites and disgruntled ex-employees, and the 18th century city was one huge inferno waiting to happen. And, of course, that is precisely what had happened in 1666 in London, when 13,000 homes were destroyed in the Great Fire of London. But that was just the most notable of many such city fires. There was also Warwick in 1694, Gravesend in 1727, and Wareham in 1762. And according to Pearson, the ubiquity of fire meant that the attitude of the general populace towards it was similar to its attitude towards other acts of God, such as illness, bad weather and crop failure, namely a fatalistic shrug of the shoulders in the face of divine providence. Fire was a fact of life. The one exception to this wave of passivity was the fine body of fire insurers that had formed in the late 1600s and early 1700s from the ashes of the Great Fire of London. 
And it was literally from the ashes because their offices were often built in the area of London, devastated by the Great Fire. And one of these new insurers was even called the Phoenix. And unsurprisingly, these insurers adopted a slightly less stoical approach towards the inevitability of fire. So, what did they do? Well, they used three basic approaches. First, they lobbied Parliament for better legislation. For example, the London Building Act of 1764 gave powers to insurers in certain circumstances to take direct control over the repair or rebuild of fire-damaged properties. And the Building Act of 1772 imposed fines on occupiers whose chimneys caught fire. In addition to lobbying, insurers also adopted practical measures such as investing in firefighting facilities in towns across the country or undertaking site inspections of properties or instructing loss adjusters after a fire had occurred. Insurers were also obliged to verify their losses by oath in front of a magistrate in an attempt to prevent after-the-event moral hazard. And thirdly, insurers forced or incentivized insurers to take fewer risks by making it harder to purchase insurance for high-risk buildings such as timber or thatched properties and high-risk activities such as cotton mills and sugar refineries. Also, during the 1700s, insurers created ever more nuanced risk categorization, which justified the imposition of higher premiums for certain risks. For example, if there were unguarded machines, unsecured combustible materials, dangerous stoves, pipes projecting through wooden floors and so on. You could argue that modern building controls and health and safety legislation have their roots in the actions taken by insurers in this period. But despite all that, Pearson's conclusions on the social impact of insurance, its role as unmoved mover, are equivocal. He says that insurance may have contributed to greater efficiencies across industry and commerce, although the link is speculative. But is, is that not exactly the way in which the unmoved mover works? By nudges and hints, subtlety and nuance. As Pearson acknowledges, yet it is not unlikely that structural alterations and changes in internal organisation, including lighting, heating, ventilation, waste removal and the precise location of production processes within buildings were, to an incalculable degree, the result of pressure exerted by insurance cover. Aha! Exactly that. That's my point. By the early 1800s, mill owners were replacing combustible timber roofs with non-combustible iron ones and were laying iron sheets over timber floors as a way of reducing the risk of fire spread. Cotton mills also regularly removed combustible waste so that it could not accumulate and form a fire hazard. Moreover, the influence of insurance can be seen in its popularity. By 1750, a very high proportion of property in London was already insured. And by 1800, fire insurance had become an essential part of business for mill management. In the early 1820s, William Brown, a spinner of flax based in Dundee, said that fire insurance was a precaution so obviously proper it is needless to say anything on the propriety of it. 
The increasing ubiquity of insurance was evidence of insurance's increasing influence, whether conscious or unconscious, on the decisions made by homeowners and particularly business owners. As it says on the Insurance Museum website in its Fire Gallery 3, by reducing the uncertainty and fear, oh, actually, sorry to interrupt, um, but there's that word fear again, just a mental note of that. By reducing the uncertainty and fear of property loss through fire, fire insurers acted as an incentive for accumulation, investment and innovation during the 17th and 18th centuries. So, according to the Insurance Museum, the existence of fire insurance provided financial security in the 1700s for entrepreneurs to innovate and for investors to invest. Insurance therefore played its part in shaping the way in which business evolved, the Industrial Revolution was formed, and in which society evolved. Now, can we prove this? No, we can't. No, of course we can't. As Pearson makes clear, it is not easy to pinpoint a direct connection between insurance and societal changes, to prove beyond reasonable doubt the existence of cause and effect. But I would argue that this is precisely because insurance is an unmoved mover. It plays on the psyche of humans and manipulates in secret ways. It moves by being unmoved. Chapter 6. Frustratingly Elusive Of course, to talk about insurance as the great unmoved mover seems faintly absurd in the context of the turbulent events of the 1700s. This was, after all, the century that established the modern world. In addition to the Industrial Revolution, this period experienced the Enlightenment and the development of the scientific method, and it witnessed the French Revolution. It was the century in which the old order went the way of Louis XVI's guillotined head, and in which a new intellectual, economic and political order was created, dominated by thinkers such as Jean-Jacques Rousseau, Voltaire, Immanuel Kant, David Hume and Adam Smith. But in geopolitical terms, the most important event surely occurred on 4th of July 1776 at the Pennsylvania State House, when the Second Continental Congress adopted the unanimous declaration of the 13 United States of America, better known simply as the Declaration of Independence, that marked the creation of the United States of America. Sadly, the Declaration of Independence does not mention insurance, but one of its 56 signatories was the nation's most famous insurer, a 42-year-old man called Robert Morris. Morris was born in Liverpool in 1734, but at the tender age of 13, he emigrated to British North America to join his father, who was a tobacco trader. At 15, he was sent to Philadelphia, where he joined a shipping and banking firm. At 23, Morris became a partner of the business, and he started developing his insurance interests alongside other merchant insurers. At 41, and on the cusp of the revolution, he was the richest man in America. 
Half a dozen years later, in 1781, so in the midst of the Revolutionary War, which still had two more years to run, Morris was appointed the Superintendent of Finance of the United States. In that role, Morris was given the sobriquet the financier of the revolution because he used his own money and sometimes borrowed from his merchant insurer friends to purchase military supplies, including those for the pivotal Yorktown campaign of 1781. When he stepped down in 1784, the role of superintendent of finance was replaced with that of secretary of the treasury, a role filled by a certain Alexander Hamilton, Yes, that's right, the $10 founding father without a father of musical fame. So, in a very literal way, an insurer financed, or at least part financed, the Revolutionary War of Independence. But that was not achieved by insurance as the mystical unmoved mover. It was achieved because the business of insurance generated significant profit for Morris and his fellow merchant insurers, which they were able to invest. Of course, I don't want to downplay that. The fact that insurers hold and invest large reserves of capital is another very genuine way in which insurance transforms society. But for the purposes of this meditation, I am more interested in the ways in which insurance indirectly transforms society through its manipulation of the human mind, by its role as the unmoved mover. This theme is picked up by Dr. Hannah Farber, assistant professor at Columbia University in her book, Underwriters of the United States. The book provides a fascinating insight into the young United States, the history of which, as a Brit, I know very little about. But in trying to answer the question, how did insurance shape the founding of America? She faces the same problem that Robin Pearson faced when answering the question, How did insurance shape the Industrial Revolution? There is nothing that you can point to and say unequivocally, there's the answer. Farber, of course, recognises this, stating that one of the insurance sector's most remarkable attributes is its ability to recede from view. As such, she brilliantly explains how America developed its own insurance industry and freed itself from its over-reliance on Lloyd's. And she explains how marine underwriters, such as Robert Morris, used their money, commercial experience, political aptitude, and, as she puts it, their intimidating aura of expertise to support the financial development of the young country. But she is unable to nail down precisely how insurance as insurance, rather than as a supplier of cash or knowledge or political influence or merely as part of the capitalist enterprise, how insurance as insurance shaped the American state. So yes, we can intuitively know that insurance is the unmoved mover, and we can even deduce it from first principles. But in terms of proof, it remains frustratingly elusive. As for Robert Morris, his life ended rather sadly. He overspeculated in land, and unable to pay his debts, he was confined for three years in a debtor's apartment next to the prison. Upon his release, he lived quietly in a modest home in Philadelphia until his death on 8th of May, 1806. Rather sadly, he has never had a musical written about him. 
Chapter 7 The Bad, the Ugly and the Good At this point, even I have to accept that the argument that insurance is the unmoved mover is unproven. But I'm not yet prepared to let it go. So here is a thesis in three parts based on the 1966 movie The Good, the Bad and the Ugly, but not necessarily in that order. Part 1. The Bad Although the phrase moral hazard was not given that name until 1865, the principle was recognised much earlier. Indeed, in 1808, in his Treatise on the Law of Insurance, Samuel Marshall said that the existence of fire insurance would naturally lead to carelessness and inattention which is a textbook example of moral hazard. But note the words that he uses. Insurance causes carelessness and inattention. And to them, he could easily have added recklessness and fraud. Moral hazard is, you will remember, the phrase that is used to describe the phenomenon that the mere existence of having an insurance policy causes us to change our behaviour. And the assumption is often that this change of behaviour will be for the worse. Because an insured is protected from the negative consequences of its decisions, there is no incentive for it to act cautiously. So it is more likely to be careless, inattentive, reckless or even fraudulent. As such, moral hazard is usually regarded as being a bad thing. If insurance makes an insured act with less caution, it means that the risk of a loss increases. Moral hazard therefore leads, in theory at least, to more fires, more car accidents, more thefts, more workplace accidents, lower levels of fitness, worse overall health and more professional negligence. Which means that the impact of insurance on society can be bad. Part 2 the ugly. And the most commonly used example of the impact of insurance on society is very bad. In fact, it is not just bad, it is downright ugly. And that example is the North Atlantic trade in enslaved Africans. In the 1700s, this horrific trade thrived. And it is often argued that it did so, at least in part, because of insurance. This is a topic that we have discussed a couple of times on the Insurance Covered podcast, two years ago with Professor Trevor Bernard and a year ago with the actor Giles Torreira. On both occasions, we discussed the appalling story of the Zong Massacre. In 1781, the crew of the Zong threw 132 enslaved Africans overboard. The ship owners then claimed against their insurance policy for loss of cargo. Insurers refused to pay and the dispute led ultimately to the courtroom and the most notorious coverage trial in history. If you have not listened to those two episodes, I would encourage you to do so. It is a story that I think every insurer should be aware of because it shows how insurance absorbs the morality of that which it insures. Actually, because of the importance of that statement and because it is something I'm going to come back to much later in this series of meditations, I'm going to say that again. 
Insurance absorbs the morality of that which it insures. If it insures something ugly, then insurance itself becomes ugly. On the Lloyds of London website, there is a page on Lloyds Marine Insurance and Slavery, written by Dr Nicholas Draper, who, between 2016 and 2019, was the director of the Centre for the Study of the Legacies of British Slave Ownership. Now, in that article, Draper states that in the second half of the 1700s, slavery-related business accounted for between 33% and 40% of the premium income of Lloyd's underwriters. A minority of that, perhaps less than a quarter, related directly to the insurance of the voyages from Africa to the Americas, the infamous Middle Passage, with the majority, the other three quarters, being the insurance on ships that carried slave-grown produce such as sugar, tobacco, rum, coffee and such like. So that highlights the impact of the slave trade on Lloyds, but I am more interested in the reverse question. Could the slave trade have operated without insurance? Was insurance the unmoved mover behind the North Atlantic trade in enslaved Africans? After recording the episode with Professor Trevor Bernard, I put that question to him and he introduced me to David Richardson and Robin Pearson, who coincidentally I mentioned earlier in the context of the Industrial Revolution. In 2019, Richardson and Pearson wrote a fascinating paper called Ensuring the Transatlantic Slave Trade, in which they emphasised the fundamental importance of insurance to the trade. They looked particularly at the records of two traders, William Davenport of Liverpool and James Rogers of Bristol. Between 1757 and 1793, Davenport and Rogers, between them, organised 129 slaving voyages. Every single one was insured. As such, certainly by the middle of the 1700s, the evidence points to the widespread use of insurance by the shipowners. Furthermore, insurance premiums amounted to around 10% of the cost of a slave voyage, which is a considerable overhead, particularly when you consider that insurers also excluded certain losses and often imposed hefty excesses. In our email exchange, Pearson said, This supports the idea that the provision of insurance and the absence of it changed the mitigation strategies of merchants. Bernard added, It is hard to imagine that without insurers, the trade could have existed in the way it did. Again, though, can we prove that insurance changed the way in which the trade in enslaved Africans was conducted? No, we can't. As with insurance's links to the Industrial Revolution, there is no categorical proof. But again we see, in the dust of history, there is the hint of a fingerprint that might indicate the presence of the unmoved mover. Part 3. The Good Earlier this year, I travelled to the Amazon for a birdwatching trip. Sorry? Oh, it was lovely. Thank you for asking. I saw a rather magnificent harpy eagle. Um, I'll, I'll show you the photographs later. Anyway, would I have gone if I had not had insurance? No, of course not. 
no insurance, no trip. It was the existence of insurance that allowed me to change my behaviour in order to take a risk that I would not otherwise have taken. And that change of behaviour was not an inadvertent byproduct of insurance, which is how moral hazard is often categorised. It was the precise reason why I purchased the insurance. And neither was it a change of behaviour that was bad, as is the assumption with moral hazard. On the contrary, it was a very good change of behaviour. I loved it. Shout out to my travel insurer for making it possible. Because not all risks are bad. Many risks are good. And that is why insurance was first invented in the 1300s, to enable good risk. Those first merchant insurers thought, we want to trade more, take more risk and make more profit. How do we do that? And their answer was insurance. Insurance was created as a mechanism to enable merchant insurers to engage in increased levels of trade, i.e., risk. That was the whole point of insurance. Because in the absence of insurance, the only way for the merchants to protect themselves against the financial catastrophe of a ship sinking or the loss of a precious cargo would have been to maintain a contingency fund. But this would have meant that a lot of their capital was tied up, unused, in readiness for a rainy day that might never come. Insurance changed all that. The existence of insurance enabled the merchants to release that money and use it more profitably. As Adrian Leonard puts it, insurance allowed merchants to invest the absolute maximum possible amount of cash and credit in trade goods and commercial voyages. So the original purpose of insurance was to change the behaviour of the merchant insurers so they could invest more, risk more and make more profit. And the same logic actually applies to fire insurance as well. Now, moral hazard means that the existence of insurance causes us to change our behaviour to be more careless, which means that there is a greater risk of fire. And that is why moral hazard is usually perceived to be a bad thing. If you didn't have fire insurance on your home, how much money would you need to set aside to provide you with protection in the event that your house burnt down? £100,000? £200,000? £500,000? Or even more than that? But with insurance, that money does not need to be tied up in a contingency fund. And that means two things. First, if you do not have spare cash, it means you can purchase properties that otherwise you would not be able to afford. If you don't need a contingency fund, you can invest more in the property itself. And second, if you do have spare cash, it means that it is free to be used however you like. So, contrary to rumours, not all moral hazard is bad. Now, some would say that this is an incorrect use of the phrase moral hazard, and they would probably be right. Perhaps I am misapplying it. But it doesn't change the fact that, for the relatively small price of a premium, 
Insurance allows us to use our money how we want, to invest it or to donate it to charity or to return it to the wider economy or to pay for a holiday to the Amazon. And for the majority of history, that effect of insurance has been a good thing because, to quote Adrian Leonard again, marine insurance has acted as a catalyst of international trade. And that word catalyst is a fascinating one because in chemistry, what is the definition of a catalyst? It is a substance that changes the rate of a chemical reaction but is itself unchanged. And I like that as an analogy. A catalyst moves by remaining unmoved. So perhaps insurance is the great catalyst. It is the unmoved mover. It changes nothing, yet it changes everything. Chapter 8. The Mystery Cat Given the role that insurance has played throughout the centuries, you might expect it to be a constant theme of drama and history books. But instead, it is almost universally ignored. On my bookshelves, I have a number of well-known general history books. And I've looked at eight of these books, ranging from Guns, Germs and Steel by Jared Diamond to Enlightenment Now by Steven Pinker via Europe, a history by Norman Davis. All of these are superb books, but in over 5,000 pages, there were, according to the various indexes, just five references to insurance. That's five references in over 5,000 pages. And it's not just historians who ignore insurance. It's novelists and filmmakers too. It crops up occasionally as a plot device, such as in the book and film Double Indemnity. And as an aside, if you want to know more about the references to insurance in Double Indemnity, I recommend the podcast Insurance vs. History with Meredith Brasher, which has an episode on that. And at this juncture, I also have to mention the late, great Terry Pratchett because insurance makes an appearance in his incomparable Discworld novels as Insua Ant's Policy. Indeed, the first book in that series, The Colour of Magic, includes a magnificent example of moral hazard. The owner of the Broken Drum Inn burns it down to claim on the insurance, and in the process starts the Great Fire of Ankh-Morpork. Pork. But the only novel of which I'm aware that uses insurance not just as a plot device, but as the underlying metaphor of the book, is Armadillo by William Boyd, who was a guest on the Insurance Covered podcast back in December 2020. The main character in Armadillo is Lorimer Black, a loss adjuster who also collects helmets. Early in the novel, he is considering whether to buy a particularly beautiful helmet a fake one which is designed to be worn by the corpse at a funeral rather than by a soldier in battle. You could chop through this with a bread knife, the salesman says. No protection at all. But the illusion of protection, says Lorimer, the almost perfect illusion. Fat log, that do you? It's all we've got in the end, isn't it? The illusion. 
This image of illusory protection is, you will not be surprised to hear, a metaphor that is later applied to insurance itself. And the title of the novel, Armadillo, is Spanish for little armed man, as well as being an animal that rolls into a ball in the belief that in so doing it will be protected. The analogy with insurance, at least the analogy that William Boyd wants us to draw, is fairly obvious. But other than that, the great writers of the world almost universally ignore insurance. It nearly creeps into Shakespeare's The Merchant of Venice and appears as a passing reference in James Joyce's Ulysses, but by and large, insurance's role in society is overlooked. It appears that the unmoved mover is not just unmoved, but unseen. And perhaps this is because, as the historian Hannah Farber concludes, the power of insurance lies in its very elusiveness. With apologies to T.S. Eliot, you could say that insurance is the macavity of history. Macavity's a mystery cat. He's called the hidden poor. For he's the master criminal who can defy the law. He's the bafflement of Scotland Yard, the flying squad's despair, for when they reach the scene of crime, Macavity's not there. Insurance messes with our minds through the psychology of worry, through magical thinking and through moral hazard. And by changing us, it also changes history's path. But it does so with nudges and nuances, as a catalyst that moves but itself remains unmoved. Its paw prints can be found near every great historical event, but any attempt to analyse the precise nature or extent of its influence stumbles and falls. Because when you reach the scene of the crime, insurance is not there. Thank you for listening to this fourth meditation. In the next meditation, entitled Understanding Life Forwards, we will examine how insurers have grappled with the problem of predicting the future. Because if an insurer wants to survive, it must be able to do that, and do so accurately. Here's an extract to whet your appetite. There is a lot more that can be said about the development of statistical thought in the late 1700s and early 1800s, but most of it is way beyond my mathematical ability either to understand or to explain. It is secret knowledge, reduced to formulae with strange symbols that only a few can understand. Z, open bracket, X, close brackets, equals H divided by the square root of pi, multiplied by E to the power of open brackets minus H squared, X squared, close brackets. And this secret knowledge is available just a small group of professionals called actuaries. They are the priests and the prophets of the irreligious faith of insurance. They are priests because they are able to access esoteric information. And they are prophets because they have an ability to see into the future. Because that is ultimately the actuary's role, to peer into the impenetrable fog of our future and discern the monsters. I hope you'll join us on Monday for the next meditation on insurance and society. RPC Radio.
Thank you so much for listening to Insurance Covered, which is an RPC production made possible by Joe Burgess and Mary Mitchell. If you enjoyed this podcast, you will also love our other podcasts, Taxing Matters and Money Covered, plus The Fix, which is co-hosted by my colleague Kelly Thompson. If you want to be a guest on Insurance Covered, please email me at peter.mansfield at rpc.co.uk. Thank you, and I hope you have a great day.